Hello and welcome to episode 168, part two of our two-part series with uh, Chris Walker today, Across the Pond, we're going to call it. And uh, again, another fantastic chat with Chris. Uh, First episode, if you want to go back, I believe it was episode 163, if I'm not mistaken, but just a few episodes back there. This is episode 168, and we take a deep dive yet again, but uh, more focusing on his time uh, once he arrived in the U.S., but before we got there, uh, we talked at length about the CIB Egyptian Open, a fantastic event, uh, lots and lots going on there. Uh, at the time of uh, uh, doing this episode with Chris, uh, we had not gotten to the final uh, between uh, Tarek and Ali and also Nor uh, El Sherbini and Norhan Gohar, but uh, prior to that, obviously, we we did have the Mustafa Asal and uh, Paul Cole match. It was just uh, right after that when we recorded this, so uh, we discussed uh, what we had seen uh, in the event, also the Kamiz Serm uh, Hanya El Hamimi match, which uh, had just uh, been played as well, and uh, Chris uh, gives us his thoughts on those matches and that event and the return of uh, Pro Squash uh, uh, and what his thoughts are on that and then we also take a look back at uh, some uh, some of the memorable matches where players may have gotten a little uh, flamboyant with with Chris and a bit maybe slightly aggressive with Chris on court and he ta- takes us back to uh, to those days and his thoughts on that and then uh, we go across the pond and uh, Chris had a, a, a fair fair few years there where he was the US national team uh, head coach and he takes a look back at, at that time and what uh, sort of what the, the vision was at that point and where the U, where US squash is now and and uh, Chris gives us his thoughts on what uh, they must uh, or what they could do going forward to uh, improve even more obviously the women uh, in the US have really um, really taken charge uh, Amanda Sabrina Sobi Olivia Blatchford Klein uh, amongst others are, are doing quite well I think uh, back when Chris was the uh, head coach of the US national team as I mentioned in the podcast you'll see you'll hear um, we talk about how Canada at that time was, uh, you know, uh, always always a bit ahead of of the U.S. in both the men's and women's uh, pro game. Uh, but now it's uh, the reverse, and uh, Chris takes us inside as to perhaps why that is now and what the U.S. needs to do in order to continue that momentum and what the men need to do in order to uh, move up a little bit further as well and then also we take a look at Chris's uh, fantastic hardball doubles uh, career and uh, in particular his uh, partnership with the the, the legendary Canadian doubles player and also great uh, softball player in his own right, uh, Victor Berg, and he spent a, a year and a half or two as Victor's partner, and uh, we talk uh, quite a bit uh, about that partnership. And, of course, there's much more as well. So I know you're going to enjoy this one, episode 168, with uh, Chris Walker across the pond. Now, before we get into episode 168, I want to tell you just briefly about our amazing sponsor, uh, Active Scout. Uh, They are working their way towards a new build, uh, and they'll be rolling that out very soon. Uh, Active Scout helps clubs grow and expand their membership base, which is uh, something that all clubs should be thinking of doing right now. 
now uh, if you're looking for more information about Active Scout and how it can help your, your club expand its membership base and uh, create a, an online environment where players can communicate effectively and efficient, efficiently about uh, squash in relation to squash only, well, let's take a look at Active Scout. If you're looking for more information, visit their website at www.activescout.com. That's Active Scout without the A C T I V. S-C-O-U-T dot com. ActiveScout.com. That's Active Scout without the E. Now, episode 168 with my main man, Chris Walker. Hey, Chris. Gary. How you doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I thought I'd go with my background. I changed my background there for to a squash picture as well. Uh in um you know with the world squash day i don't know if you can see it or not but uh, oh there you are it's you in action yeah Yeah, that's me (laughs) (laughs) it's not it's not quite uh, what you've got going there which is the uh tournament of champions in grand central but uh exactly yeah yeah on the receiving end of your in dubai (laughs) who's on the receiving end there uh, that's uh, actually he's over there. I, I think he might even be, or no, he's in Philadelphia now. Uh, Fahim Khan. You might yeah. have heard of him. Uh, he's co- I have, yeah. doing some coaching uh, now over there, but he was sort of a legend in these parts here in Dubai for several years. When I showed up, he was coaching at a nice club and had a great, uh, nice little junior program and uh, one of the better players around at that time. And uh, yeah. Now he's over there. Yeah. He played in the circuit, didn't he? I think for a little bit. Uh, but there, there are two Fahim Khans. There's one f- based out of Hong Kong. Abdul. Yeah. And this is, uh, I think Fahim, this Fahim, his father was like a British, got to the British Open final or, or something along those lines. So he comes from a bit of pedigree. Yeah. Damn I'd love to see a family tree for the Khans. I really would. That would be epic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, well Chris, uh, I just want to say thanks uh, again uh, uh, for doing this. This is part two uh, of our uh, two-part podcast, uh, and I'm going to entitle this one Across the Pond because I, I believe uh, where, <laughs> we left, <laughs> where we left off last time was uh, just sort of when you uh, moved over there and got your, your feet wet. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, yeah, on, in uh, the, on the swim across, yeah. <laughs> but I uh, think you, you, uh, if memory serves, and we'll go, we'll get to this a bit later. But if memory serves, you, you went over. It wasn't really on a whim, but you had sort of a, a friend had invited you to go over there just to check things out, and then the rest is history, uh, as they say. And a lot has happened between uh, then and now. But uh, I'd like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about what everybody in the squash world uh, seems to be talking about today, uh, it, which is uh, last night's amazing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was. A, I mean, I, firstly, I mean, I don't think I've watched that much squash in, a, uh, in succession in a long time because I did watch. Uh, the first match of the night, which was an incredible match between uh, Camille Serum and um, and uh, Hanya El Hamimi, which went o- over like 90, 90 minutes, and it was dramatic, and it was, you know, fighting. Uh, Camille did really well to fight back there, so I'd watched that, and that was amazing. And then five minutes later, the match with Mustafa and Paul started, and 
Uh, I was just wondering what you thought because I mean everybody in the squash world now is talking talking about Mustafa and uh, you know my take is that you know the dust has settled a bit but my take is that uh, sure he he may have gone a bit overboard he's 19 though uh, you know there was a bit of argy bargy there there was a little bit you know there were a couple calls you know his, his asking for let's okay he's going to learn from that that's not his fault really you know he he asked for the let he he didn't get the let. I, uh, those lets in the beginning a couple of balls looked like they hit the tin he didn't really recognize that but uh, at the end of the day I mean he showed I mean what he the squash that he played in my estimation was just it was electrifying there was a period there where he was just pulling off shots getting balls I mean there's no one really plays like him he's one of these guys I'm just wondering what your take is I, I don't think there was the celebration at the end it is what it is and there are others on tour Gregory Galche uh, is the big one. I mean, they're they're known for their post-match theatrics as well. So uh, that's my uh, my my two cents worth. What does uh, Chris Walker have to say about that? I mean, I I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. You know, first and foremost, he's he's just on the circuit. He's young and uh, and you know a lot of energy, a lot of passion out there. Um, I thought the the celebration would probably have been better if he'd done it about 10 seconds later after after Kyle had got a no let um but you know this is all kind of uh, part of the egyptian passion and uh, an expression of of emotions and and uh, you saw it very clearly right yeah. <laughs> there was no holding back but also um you know a, a bunch of friends of mine were in a a fancy football league chat thread and um I don't know if you knew that uh, Mo Salah celebrated one of his goals against Leeds in the same way with his tongue out and the uh, hands yeah. and the ears. And that was um, that was actually in celebration uh, from a pro footballer of his um, who um, had a rare disease that forced him to stop playing. And so he was kind of supporting athletes. Um, and, and that was that was why Salah did it. And, you know, obviously Egyptian as well. Maybe there was, you know, I think there was probably a link there. I don't know if uh, Assad actually said that or not. Well, he, um, he did it uh, in previous matches as well. Uh, I mean, I've seen, I've seen pictures of his uh, previous rounds where at the end of it, he did the same little, uh, what, the, what did grind, he do? Grind. <laughs> yeah. That's, Whatever that was, yeah. It's almost like the hucko, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, um, yeah, I just think it was it maybe he should have just delayed and, and had a bit more respect for um, for his opponent in in that um, in starting the celebration once that you know the game was over. But but you know I think he was probably trying to influence and hope to influence the decision and get the you know get the result um, as quickly as possible. Which um, you know is it kind of a maybe a, a bit of a trend through the match as well, where you know just always eking out the the little extra inches here and there and and. Uh, you know, pushing the envelope as, as much as possible. Um, you know, and it's important that the referees manage those situations well. He's not the only one. There's plenty of players out there, as you say. Um, so, you know, I think it's, you know, I, I don't think it's um, something ridiculous that needs a fine or anything like that, but maybe a slap on the wrist and like, you know, hey, just, uh, you know, make sure the match is over before 
the only other argument is it that it's in the middle of a, an, an epidemic. So whoever got that shirt in the face <laughs> yeah, yeah. may have a lawsuit. But then again, you're in Egypt, so I'm not sure that's going to happen. <laughs> I think uh, Lee Drew, uh, he, he, had, he, he quipped there, he better not take off any more clothes. Cause he was <laughs> well, yeah, I said, I, said, I said, well, if he does that after a quarter, what's he going to do when he wins a tournament? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, another thing, too, that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people – you know, that got caught up in that moment there at the end, they tend to forget, at least uh, from what I saw early on, it was more, Paul was kind of egging him on a bit. Uh, I mean, he was really, he started the shouting after every point. After he, He'd won a couple of rallies early on and he had this big guttural uh, shout. And then I think uh, Mustafa kind of followed suit and then it, it just kind of started from there. So it, it seems to me like it could have been the result of, just the way the things started going there at the beginning of the match. Yeah, I mean, they're both big guys, aren't they? They're both big guys. They're going to get in the way of each other. They, they know the space on the court. Um, it's their office. It, you know, massive moment for both by the pyramids, you know, in front of uh, the great Egyptian gods. Um, so lots of tension, lots of, lots of noise, lots of uh, people, lots of pressure. Um, so, you know, even, even, uh, the, uh, the, the focus of, of, you know, Paul, uh, Paul Cole is also, um, you know, challenged by that whole thing. And, and perhaps he felt a bit edgy as well, and maybe vocalized a bit more than he would have done normally. Um, so it was all, you know, I think it was just a very tense match. Uh, the quality was high and, um, yeah. that was a fantastic yeah. match. I, I don't think people should be taken away from the quality. I mean, uh, Paul, as we all know, has been playing really well. And he, I thought he played pretty well there last night. But when you're up against, I think he just, it looked to me at the end, like sort of the last few points, he didn't really know what to do. So he just kept playing it back. He just kept playing length, 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 length. And, and yeah, Asal uh, was just going to pounce on something. It just looked like he didn't want to lose it at that point rather than, uh, trying to you know find a way to win it and uh yeah sometimes that isn't the right recipe and you know maybe yeah he'll look back and and review that i'm sure and, and learn from it yeah for sure now i want uh, on that note i mean i wanted to ask you i mean you in your long story career you must have come had a few uh, moments like that where things got a bit emotional or you you ran into uh players who sort of got a bit flamboyant or aggressive uh with you or in terms of the sit, not with you, maybe, but maybe with you or in just in terms of the occasion uh, names that spring to mind for me might be a guy like Ahmed Barada, even uh, he tended to be, wasn't really out like vocally that bad, but he, he could be aggressive and uh, uh, things like that. But uh, what, how, how about in your, uh, in your, yeah, game? you do, uh, you do your homework. You're very diligent and thorough. I mean, the, the, as soon as you started ask, asking that question, Barada came to mind and a very similar match for me at the Al-Aram in Egypt, probably on the same sand that that court's built on today. Um, <laughs> I was playing Barada in the semi-final um, and, and it was a real pig fight uh, of a match. And, you know, he is built like a like an ox and legs like trees. Very like hard to shit house. Is that what you? Were... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, am I allowed to say these words are going to beat me out? But I haven't you know, defined hard, yet. So. 
hard, hard player to play. And you've got to keep him away from the middle. You've got to play tight. You can't give him angles and opportunities to, uh, you know, use that body position to his advantage, especially in Egypt um, uh, with the with the crowd behind him and, and any, you know, anything, anything that uh, gives him a reason to start getting pumped up is really what you're trying to diffuse um, throughout the whole match. It's, it's like, um, so anyway, you know, I was playing him and, and um, you know, we got to, it was fifth set and, and I ended up, uh, we ended up in the, it was up to 15 points um, back then, point to rally. And, and in the fifth game, it was um, 13 all. And, uh, and you probably want to get the video out and, and play it because it was a very similar scenario at the front right, actually. And, um, and Barada got his body in the way a little bit and I felt I was on it. But obviously uh, the referee and 3,000 screaming Egyptians didn't care about that. <laughs> and, uh, Did and, he, stick? He, he was notorious for doing something with his like his left foot or his right foot or up there in the front right corners. Uh, yeah, he had, he had some good moves. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you know when it's coming, you've just got to, you know, it's, it's hard. You've got to, you've got to make, because he also played bloody good shots. Oh, you know, yeah, he also absolutely. take the ball in. And, and, uh, and, and I don't think, like physically, I don't think I've seen a guy that looks like him since he's left the game. Like, there, I mean, there are big guys out there, but his, he was, like, his legs were massive. Yeah, yeah, very strong. Um, and he only, I mean, he really raised his level um, to the to his best performances um, by the pyramids. And, you know, uh, um, and I think Assad kind of grew up and was motivated and inspired by what Barada had done in the past as well. So um, it's kind of ironic that we're talking here now about that particular match. But, you know, it is what it is. That's, that's, what Cole had to deal with. Um, I totally uh, feel for him and yeah. went through a very similar thing because I lost that match um, as well. And, uh, and you know, you, you just, it's hard to, it's hard to prepare for those. And, and mm. you know, you just got to like learn from them, remember and, and try and do something a little bit different and just be a little bit more aware in those moments um, you know, in the future and, and try not try not to let them happen. I mean, it's all about keeping the opportunities out of the out of the play, you know, and and uh, and and then also trying to win, you know, and, and uh, it's a very well, fine balance. I was going to say, like, uh, in hindsight, maybe I mean, I thought now thinking about it a little bit, maybe uh, and, and if you were in Paul's corner, for example, given your experience, would you have maybe told him not to get not to express your emotions so much because that's not obviously given to where where the game is played given who uh who's in yeah the i think you know it's it's kind of know, yeah maybe i mean the important thing out there is that you're focused to a pinpoint on what you're trying to do at any given moment and if you feel that you you know you're honest with yourself and you feel that in the rallies in those points you're in that moment and um then then you know the odd yelling and stuff like that isn't so important right some players do it better than others but but if you you know if you feel if you can see it costing you even if it's one 
or two percent of the time that that could be the difference in the end and you've got to try and reel it in and and get your get your head together so that you can you know be a hundred percent i mean that's that's what you're after and you can't give them you know you can't give your opponent anything especially an egyptian by the pyramids yeah <laughs> with uh you know with yeah. the thousands and all of, the karma it's um it's an amazing experience and and yeah. definitely hard to replicate in even in visualization you know and uh mental preparations but but um, once you've lived through a couple of those sorts of matches you you realize how crucial it is to to not ever switch out of the moment when you're competing and and uh, every you know because they they are the egyptian players in particular are so in the moment and and will pounce on any opportunity they're looking to pounce they're looking to pounce um yeah. and uh and so yeah you've just got to be up up to it and and take it when it doesn't go your way and you know and believe in yourself that you can pull through um when it does get really close if it gets close at the end of, the, of a game is that uh, i mean talk about that like looking to pounce i mean you you've been in the coaching game now for for a long time uh is that something you you can teach i mean it's obviously something they do well uh yeah i think it's um it's part of the it's part of the um wanting to win and the desire to win um you know that motivation i mean you, you know it's difficult to to teach motivation, but you can certainly develop it and and find the buttons that that um, you know you'd push for each particular individual, whether you're goal setting or egging them on, or you know um, lots of different ways to to try and push those buttons. Um, so so yeah, you know you can talk about it. You can definitely teach it to some degree and become more aware of what makes individuals tick. Um, because you know different people have different buttons so you know it's almost it's a you know you, you go on court and you've got different players in the tournament and you're going through playing these players through the season and you start to learn what buttons to push and what what ones you don't want to go near because yeah, yeah. uh because you know you, you don't want to kind of wake the wake the bear in them if you like and uh so yeah it's an interesting thing it really is um when you when you look at the detail of of the mental state of people um, in in the moments like like that match last night, yeah, yeah, I mean it had it all last night. It was one of the the best matches uh, I've I've seen in quite a while. It had the squash, it had the drama, the theater, the the backdrop. Uh, it was all there. So and 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 also I think we're just missing squash. It's it's back now, but uh, it's great yeah. to see uh, squash back at that level. Uh, again and the women's uh, has been uh, like I said that that first match I thought okay well geez that's a great way to start uh, the night it's not going to get much better than that and then then we had that match so (laughs) never know what happens in Egypt yeah but it is great to have the game back and you know to see the top players uh, going at it again and interesting to see you know um, how they've all coped with six Mm. months seven months of uh you know no com- no competition it, it's been a, a mental challenge for everyone and you know some some have obviously um got through it a lot better than others and and stayed focused on on getting fitter stronger working on the game improving building confidence um so yeah so but it's great to you know 
have the starting gun and uh, and see see the tour back in action definitely absolutely now uh let's get back to uh you know why we're here today and uh, we're going to just revisit just briefly chris uh you moved to to the us uh i guess it would have been towards the tail end of your your playing career you were still playing on the you were still on the tour at that time but uh you know something uh i get one of your friends invited you over just to I guess take a look at the the landscape over there and see if, if it was something you'd be interested in. And then, as we said, well, the rest is history. So just give us a backstory, yeah. just to revisit that, if you don't mind. Yeah. So um, it, it wasn't actually a, a friend at the time. Um, it was 2001, um, and it, it actually kind of pre predates 2000 a little bit uh, because um, I was on a break from squash and, you know, it's kind of like the British open, um, uh, in 2000, I was on a, before that I was on a break from squash and a family in Greenwich reached out to me, um, asking if I'd, um, help them with their, with their two daughters who, you know, one of them, just, they just started playing and how many camps they should do in the summer and just get, you know, a bit of information from me. And, and they got my name from a, from a friend. And so I, you know, I replied to their email and, and they said, oh, if you're ever in town, give us a call. Um, so that was fine. And, and I came back from my six month trip, you know, just away from the game and started training back in England. And then one of the first tournaments I played was the Tournament of Champions. And also um, at that time, there was a smaller event in Greenwich. And uh, so I remembered that email. I just pinged them an email, said I was in town if they wanted to meet up. And so I ended up meeting up with them and uh, and getting on court with the two daughters who were about 13 and 11 years old at the time, maybe 12 and 10 years old at the time, and um, and and just hit with them. And that was, um, that was kind of the start, really. After that, the family basically asked me if I'd come over and work with the kids whenever I could. And this was at a time where I was coming to the end of my career and, you know, kind of looking for a transitional opportunity. I'd been over to the States a ton of times playing tournaments and also played a bit of hardball doubles yeah. as well. We're, we're going to um, talk about that soon. Yeah. So, you know, so, <laughs> you know, I, I had, I had some interests in the States anyway. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. I was still based in London and I'd come over to the States and, you know, and coach the kids for three or four days when I had gaps in my calendar and then go off and play tournaments and, um, and through the British open, I actually was meant to go and coach them. And I had to keep ca- counseling my lessons with them as I progressed through the tournament. And then uh, eventually 2001, right. And in, in 2001 and, 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 uh, eventually I got, um, I got over there. Uh, I, I played the British open final, drove home, unpacked my bags, repacked them and flew over to the States the next day. And I was on court with the kids the next afternoon. Right on. And that's, uh, you know, how, so, how, I mean, that, that flight over, I mean, you must've been on top of the world. I mean, not just get, I mean, getting to the British open final. Uh, how, how did you feel, you know, in your own head about your squash at that time? I mean, I mean, I, how, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I just reflect on that sort of period and, and, you know, I, I just was, I loved playing. I, you know, I'd, I'd had that big break and come back hungry to, to perform. And I, you know, I just felt like I understood the game and, and was just enjoying every, any, every moment 
that I could uh, sustain it. I feel, you know, a bit like Gregory Gaultier is at the moment, I suppose, you know, he's, he's on borrowed time if you like, but it's great to see. And, you know, I totally, I, I can, um, you know, relate to that. And, and that's what I was doing. I was just, you know, I just, I, I was, you know, just playing great squash. I wasn't quite as, as fast as I was before. And, you know, fitness wasn't too bad, but um, the little speed was making up with, uh, with the skill and the tactics and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so having played the British and then coming over here, I was just, you know, I was just loving life really. And, and it was great to, to, to move from one stage to the other, you know, off of the British open final stage. And then the next day just to be on court with the kids, it was pretty cool, you know, in, in America, having done an, an across the pond flight. Um, and so, you know, so, so I'd done that and then, and then the family said, well, why don't you, you know, would you consider coming over to the States and basing yourself over here and, and coach the kids kind of full time, you know, and so you're over here. And, and at that point I thought it was a good opportunity because I was looking for next step. And so that's what I did. I, I, um, I actually moved over here September, the, uh, September the 8th, 2000, um, 2001 so three days before 9-11 right and and uh yeah so i got here three days before that happened which was the most bizarre you know few days of uh of my experience in the states um and uh and 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 that's really you know that's how i got over here and then i just started working with the kids um between tournaments based you know living in greenwich connecticut and uh and and that's how I started my coaching career over here. Played the circuit for another couple of years, and uh, and weaned my way off of the PSA onto the SDA, the, the Squash Doubles Association, playing hardball doubles tournaments across the US. And you know I, I was doing that up until, um, well, I mean seriously, I was doing that up until I had a new hip in 2016. Oh, okay. <laughs> And, so yeah, uh, yeah. Are you still, uh, you know, speaking of, of the new hip, can you still play at all? Like, uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've got I've got two new hips now. Oh really? And uh, I think yeah. I might need one. Uh, After the first one went, the second one, um, I had a little issue with the first one, so I was on crutches for three months while it uh, kind of solidified its situation in my in my bone. And the bone grew in to strengthen it. So I had to go on crutches for three months. And while I was hopping around on my left leg, that hip um, went as well and just bone on bone. So I ended up having a, a second hip replacement um, kind of 18 months later. Okay. So, um, but yeah, so, you know, it's a slow progress, the rehab from that. And, you know, you look at it on a, on a year to year timeline, really. Well, I, I have been, um, although I can see small progressions, you know, maybe week or month to month, but, but, you know, it's, it's certainly a journey of patience and, and then just trying to find the right rehab at the right time and, and not pushing it too hard. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm feeling stronger and stronger. The six month COVID break was good. Cause I was, I, you know, I was still, I'm still playing hardball doubles um, in the tournaments over here and, and want to do that again when we start playing the tournaments again. Um, but at the moment we're not. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a good, a good place physically and I'll keep working on it because I still think I can 
get a bit quicker, get some speed back, and you yeah. know, and and you know, while we're talking about hips, it was actually quite quite a positive experience because suddenly I was like a you know I was like a twenty year old young professional again where every day would be a little bit better you know i'm on, a, on an improvement curve again whereas from from you know 30 years old until um until that point 45 30 to 45 years old I've, i always felt like i was trying to sustain what i had you know i just I, I couldn't get any quicker anymore it was always how can i maintain my speed and yeah. so uh you know so coming back from a serious surgery like that it was so i mean just to stop you that's pure gold right there i think for a lot of people like like me or like you who are you know in the back of their minds maybe they think uh you know i need that surgery i think you know a little niggle here and there all it's always uh you know cropping up uh, when i'm playing um so yeah, yeah i mean the way that you approach it there your mindset is uh you know get it done and then you know you get to to improve again Exactly. I mean, I, it got to the point where if I, if I, you know, went for a, a light jog or if I played a game of squash, my hip would be aching for, you know, a week. And, um, and it happened almost overnight. I was playing a doubles tournament in New York, actually, at NIAC, New York Athletic Club. And the week before, I'd done a bit of training and my hip was a little bit sore um, just before the weekend, so I took a couple of painkillers, and I don't nor- do, normally do that, but you know, I just took a couple of painkillers because it was that irritating. And played the tournament, and it was fine. And then, and then I came off the painkillers on the Monday morning, and by Wednesday, the hip was almost you know seized up, and and that was just the, oh, no. the you know the realization that this isn't normal. You know, normally. I might be a little stiff and, you know, and stretch it out, but this was, it was locking the bone on bone. So um, it was, it was a, I tried some PRP platelet rich plasma inject injected directly into the joint via an ultrasound video thing, which was quite interesting watching seeing a six inch needle go into my leg (laughs) (laughs) and that, and that uh, took away the pain because it gave some space between the bones but it it was clear after about two or three weeks of of kind of patiently waiting that it was only uh, you know a temporary fix. It was you know putting a, a plaster over it. It wasn't it wasn't yeah. helping any. It wasn't really recovering. It just took the pain away until um, you know it started to to dissipate out of the joint again. So um, yeah, so it was it was. That that happened in January, and then I had the surgery in June, you know, just a few months later, and uh, and it, you know, I, everyone's it's all individual because you can have resurfacing, you know, and Andy Murray's obviously yeah. um, in the in the spotlight at the moment with what he's going through, and and he he's uh, you know I, I watched that with interest because uh, there was a good Netflix um, called Resurfaced. Um, about him going through his uh, his journey and having the surgery, and and so you know it's interesting to see how he's doing at the top level of tennis, which doesn't have quite as much vigorous twisting and turning, but it's still you know still brutal out there. And he's a big guy who who tends to move well. Um, so. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you got you know, 
top guys there. They're all moving incredibly well, right? So, so he's got back to he got back to an incredible level. The effort that that uh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's gone uh, through maybe and maybe COVID helped him as well. Maybe you know maybe the six month break gave him a chance to really uh, plant you know at least get some good groundwork in without having to battle through tournaments. But um, yeah, I don't know what he's going to do next. Um, he obviously had some good results but he's yeah. a perfectionist and he's going to get frustrated if he doesn't think he can you know get to the finals of the major events no exactly we'll probably go give wimbledon one or two more cracks and then uh, see how it goes yeah, yeah. or take up doubles <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh well now chris um uh now i just wanted to talk a little bit about the, a couple of things um that you did, that you've done uh, in the U.S. that I think are are quite uh, you know accomplishments and probably things that you felt were were big challenges and and uh, something that you can hold your hat uh, on. Uh, one of them is uh, you were the head coach for the U.S. national team for a, a few years, and I think back during that time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but during that period where you you stepped in and started working with the national team players of Canada, I'm Canadian, so uh, Canada may have uh, still had at that time, uh, especially on the men's side, probably, yeah, even on the women's, uh, been been a, a couple steps ahead. Uh, but that's not the case nowadays. Uh, so looking back at that time, uh, uh, and there were there were some good young players coming up. Julian Illingsworth springs to mind, obviously a young Chris Gordon, the guy that you've worked with for, for quite a few uh, years and uh, some other uh, younger American guys at the time. What did you see uh, then as the, the major challenge for getting uh, U.S. squash uh, to where, I guess, where it is today, uh, which is in a good yeah. place today? Um, well, I mean, back then, the, the, the national team um, really didn't get the support that it deserved. And, um, you know, it's been a journey for the last 20 years, really, the whole time I've been over here, in um, in in recognizing that the you know the pros of the game um, are the are the pinnacle and the, and and they're the ones that the kids here look up to and to have you know to have them um, at the top of the game being looked after and supported by the association as they are more and more now it w- was and is really really important you know you've got to show you've got to show your kids a pathway to the top and uh and and that's you know and provide that um accessible to as many people as possible obviously bring you know the 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 survival of the fittest in a way but the best players coming through so you know back then um i think you know as part of of that i mean i remember my position was really voluntary or you know I, i i um, I was paid for going to the, the events, um, but you know the stuff we did in between events, the camps, and um, I actually part of what I did was organise six or seven tournaments for the for the U.S. men to play in as part the of their process, yeah. election process. Yeah, so no, I remember that. Yeah, I, re- I remember. So, so what you're getting at is that back at that time there was no paid position for for the head squash coach of the the u.s national team yeah so exactly it was you know 
I'd say it was a labour of love. I wanted to work with top players as well as the juniors and, you know, and I was still playing um, good squash. So, you know, it was great hitting with guys like, like Julian and Chris. Um, but, but, you know, we, we, I, as the coach got paid for going to the, going to the, the events, you know, like the Pan Ams and, and, uh, and those sorts of things. But what happened in between, you know, I just wanted to try and get more team spirit and, and, and the tournaments were a great, great way to get everyone together. Um, you know, I think we did have a great team spirit and, uh, and when we came together at these events, um, you know, because we spent some time together at the different um tournaments and selection tournaments around the country um i think that you know that helped bring that on and then you know i mean all i could as a coach um when we were working we had a few camps and and times like that outside of uh, outside of the competition was you know just what i'd been doing as a professional growing up really you know the commitment the daily the daily grind not making it a daily grind, but, you know, that commitment that is something, you, you know, you're a squash professional first and foremost, you, you kind of carry that 24-7. So if you go to bed at two or three in the morning with a few beers in you, you've got to, you've got to, you know, that's got to be part of the plan, really. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and it's okay after, you know, after a major event or the end of the year or, you know, do what you want. You don't have, even have to drink, but but it's a 24/7 job and you're looking at diet and your training and resting and build up for tournaments and tapering off at the beginning of uh, you know coming into a tournament and summer training and that was something that the the US guys didn't really do much in in the summers over here which was noticeable you know that the the guys would be going to coach at squash camps at you know one of the universities here and and so they'd spend four or five hours helping the university coaches coach their kids and obviously that's not you know and then they train in the mornings or train in the afternoons and i was i was really trying to uh, you know convince and 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 explain that to get to the ne- next level it's it's a 365 day a year program of a, about improving your squash and and all of these things are great and you're helping out your mates and exhibition matches everywhere and all these things are good but but you know the uh, the un- the most important thing is that it, there needs to be a strategy behind it so that you you're improving your game or you you've got a reason for doing these things and obviously you have sponsors so you have to do appearances for sponsors and things like that um you know one of the one of the one of the issues we had when i was um at the helm there was uh with wearing goggles um you know the, the us squash wanted wanted the team to wear goggles while they were playing in the states and and that's crazy when it's a disadvantage because you're sweating and the visibility yeah, yeah. and you're playing all the players who are coming in around the world who sign a waiver and they don't have to so um you know it's, it, those sorts of things were were um you know teething problems i suppose as as us squash has expanded and grown and um, is it something you uh, you had to try to do i guess maybe to convince us squash I guess uh, to try to support the players that they that they didn't have to go to and uh, work at these camps in the summer because I get I'm assuming that they felt maybe they you know they needed some pocket money or they needed some way of yeah, exactly uh, they needed you know, to survive yeah they needed so to that, survive that's and basically what guys are I mean, the the, yeah. the guys are doing I guess. so you know when at that point back then there wasn't the resources 
um, available, um, you know, whether the money was there or not, um, you know, it was deemed there wasn't the resources available at that point to, to do those things and really help as much um, as is needed. And, and, you know, when I was, comp- I was comparing. That's got to um, be discouraging, eh? I mean, <laughs> as a player, well, and then and as a coach, you're trying to build this team to get these guys to reach their potential, but they, they just don't feel that they have the, the support to, to do it. So they're not going to be all in, right? So that, you know, it's all the whole picture, isn't it? It's the, it's the point of motivating, having the top players on that pedestal so the young kids can, can see the journey to the top and then they want to be those guys. And so yeah. you've got to treat those guys in a way that motivates kids to want to carry on the journey and get there. And, and you know, that was... Yeah, that was a that was a, a part of what was going on at that point, and I think you know I think to to be fair, US squash has has responded, and they and they are supporting the players a lot more now, and I you know they there's a lot more kids playing, and um and you know we'll see who comes through next, but but they've got more resources, they you know more money, more members, and uh, you know the bottom line is that US squash is a not for profit. Um, we're not in the Olympics, so um, you know we we don't get the Olympic funding, the the large amount of money that Olympic sports get. We don't get, even though we're a Pan American sport in in the states, it's still a notch down from the Olympics. So, you know, so we, it's it's uh, it's been an in house an in house battle, and uh, and you know to to distribute those those funds. Um, and, and have more of a focus on the on the pro on the pro players, and they, they've definitely done that now. And, and you know, yeah. it's great to see. There's a, there's the the National Training Center, the Specter Center in Philadelphia, that's uh, nearly complete. Philadelphia is a hotbed now, which is and 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 it's got a lot of yeah, it's got a lot of squash there. So uh, it'll be a, a good base for you know. I don't know uh, all the details, but you know, I don't know if all the pro players will end up basing themselves there or. Uh, or not, because you know you've also got the pro players who've got their own coaches, and you know are the, all the coaches going to head down to Philly just to work with their players? It's yeah. or the players may stay in their their pods and and come down to Philly for squads and stuff like that. So uh, you know that's all it's exciting all kind times, of details, it? but uh, it is yeah, it's really you know COVID, COVID allows us allows this thing to grow uh, and. Uh, you know, not, not sort of stagnate like it is now, but hopefully, uh, yeah, Philly, New York, Boston, uh, there's nice little sort of, sort of area, uh, growing now for squash. Yeah. Well, it's unbelievable. You know, we talk about since I've been here, um, in 2001, you know, in the last 20 years, it's, it's incredible. The number of kids, um, that now play in the tournaments, you know, look at the U S open juniors and there's like, I don't know 700 kids there right and um and that's the kind of one of the biggest tournaments in the world for junior for, as a junior event if not the biggest um but there's a whole lot more going on there's you know the universities the and, and even the even schools um have built squash courts for their for their kids to have you know school teams and and those are set up because the the parents want their kids to get to college and it's a great way to get to college. And if your school has got squash courts and you've got a school team, then while the kids are, you know, studying, 
they can also get their squash in with the school team and 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 there's you know good coaches are now at these school team levels and and that's so that bring you know brings kids to the schools and then obviously the schools the, the colleges are looking for the best players for their college teams mm. and so the the uh you know the next jump is that college to pro level um which has had you know a bit more attention recently but yeah. but when i first came over here you know the tournament the tournaments that were on each month um for the juniors there were there was you know one major tournament a month perhaps for the juniors but now there's you know there's two or three tournaments four or five tournaments a weekend for the kids you know before covid and just because there's so many kids in so many areas and you can have you know a top level tournament and two or three um laddered down from that and and they're you know they're all busy the clubs have got these competitions going on and and you know pre-covid it was all very healthy um covid certainly it stopped us in our tracks but you know it was a it was an incredible upward trend that that we were still uh, enjoying and and it didn't look like it was slowing um but you know since since covid uh, a couple of couple of the the universities have uh, have said they're going to step away from having varsity squash yeah. uh, and just make it a club level sport um but but we'll see you know we'll see what happens in the next in the next year or two will be uh, interesting to see how how we bounce back because uh, you know there's a lot of talk at the US squash with how to bring tournaments back online when we've got problems with traveling by airline and a lot you know a lot of kids will travel to play the bigger tournaments and it's a big country so you have to use a plane yeah. and uh, and at this point we can't force people to use a plane so we can't have a you know we can't have a, a national junior event because it's just not fair no. And you know, you come to New York, you've got to quarantine for two weeks, so no, you've got to come here for right. two weeks before you can go out and play a game. So you know, it's all very localized at the moment, and um, and everyone's kind of wearing masks, and and uh, you know, we we've got to keep the pulse in the sport and, until we can, um, you know, open it up again, and, and then that's going to be in phases, which which has already begun. Yeah, absolutely. But the the varsity scene, I mean, it's really I think it's really done wonders, especially for the for the women, uh, the U.S. women. I mean, uh, you've got, you know, the Sobe sisters. Uh, I'm not sure if Olivia Blatchford, uh, if she played varsity, but there are there are uh, a handful of the girls uh, and on, on the Canadian uh, across the border in Canada, too. We've got several of those Danielle and Holly. Uh, I think they both played for Cornell. Uh, or yeah, I think I think that's right. But uh, I mean, that's definitely had a, a positive impact on the, the quality of players coming out of North America. But it seems more so the women uh, ha- have benefited from it because they, they've made uh, some serious inroads into the you know the top thirty even in the world, which was never the case uh, previously for for Canadian born uh, or American born and bred uh, talent. Yes, uh, you're right. It, it, it's been it's been great because they've had a chance to you know do their studying while while they're playing top level competition. And you know, there's a lot of foreign players come over, um, or foreign students, I should say, come over and, and are playing in the teens now. So there's lots of high, you know, good world class quality matches going on um, on you know through the through the through the college season. So. Um, I was really impressed with uh, Victor Quang. 
the other night. Uh, I mean, he's play. He plays for a pen, I think. Is it uh, the Cruan? Yeah, Cruin. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, was I, trying mean, to, uh, I had I had uh, Gregory Galche on, and I swear that's how we said it. Crank. So. Oh, I'll have to listen to that one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with Greg. <laughs> Don't argue with Greg. Yeah, no, no. Right. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, you got guys like that playing, uh, uh, you know, against the top American players, top Canadian players. Um, Andrew Douglas is a guy who's benefited from that. Um, yeah. Uh, James Flynn from Toronto. Uh, he, I mean, he beat Victor in the in the singles. Uh, in the uh, the national in the the college collegiate individual event, I think Victor yeah. was just getting off of a, an injury. But uh, I mean that that's a huge win for a Canadian young fellow. So obviously a lot of experience to be had and uh, good squash to be played for for those young guys in in Canada and in the U.S. So that's what you've got. You've got you know the top colleges now are bringing in the top student players from around the world mm-hmm. and. You know, guys like Ali Farag, were, you know, he went to Harvard, right? He's number one in the world and and uh, and he's gone through that route. So it gives everyone a lot of confidence that, okay, if I go to college, perhaps I'm, I still have a chance to make it to, you know, to the top 10 in the world or whatever your, your goal is. But what's happening is that these, these colleges are becoming little hotbeds of squash. They've got great quality squash going on every day through the season and outside of, you know, outside of the college season, the kids are studying, but they're able to compete and play at the best, at the top level. They're doing world, you know, world-class or close to it competing and practice. And, and so, you know, the, the four-year college stint isn't, isn't necessarily treading water anymore. It's actually, you know, you're surrounding yourself with some of the best, student athletes that are around and and uh and so it, it you know arguably is a great stepping stone for especially for squash when you're you know you, you, you at that age if you turn professional and you're you know outside the top 40 probably um you're not making money you've got to scrap around and make money somehow and yeah. so you know the college the college model works because the time you spend on court is the time that you're training and doing the top level stuff and the rest of the time you're studying. Whereas, you know, it's better than doing five hours of coaching a day and then having to do some training, you know, on top of that. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, the, the U S has still got a ways to go, I think in, in evolving. And, you know, I'd like to think that, um, it will, it will produce some more top players and, you know, I know, I, I think um, the, the mentality of, of most Americans is, you know, is, is still quite, um, you know, focused on, on financial security and, and looking at the future like that. So, so I think, you know, we'll probably still lose a few, a few of the great players or potential great players, the young ones coming through because they don't see it out, you know, and, um, and and give it you, you you turn pro you've got to give it two three four years really realistically yeah. to 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 get into the get into it and and uh, well, a guy like uh, Julian Illingsworth is a great example I mean he he gave it a, a couple of years there where he he put it all you know, he he gave it his all and uh, I think he got to the top thirty 
in the world, didn't he? So yeah, he yeah, and um, you know, U.S. squash started to support him in the second phase of his career, in particular, and um, and and he's a great example to to the kids, and you know, it's all about refining and improving and and just helping the pros in you know in in this environment to be able to focus on their game and, and not have to spend hours coaching or you know going to do camps in the summer and, and so they just get fitter and focus on on what's best for the you know best for their squash because ultimately they're they're uh, they're leading you know they're the spearhead of the arrow <laughs> the rest yeah, of us right yeah well i want to uh chris if you don't i know you've been tremendous with your time i can't believe it's 50 minutes has gone by already uh <laughs> but uh yeah it's incredible we haven't even gotten yeah we're, we're still swimming we, <laughs> yeah. we haven't gotten to the shore yet uh we, we haven't talked about victor berg yet <laughs> but uh, you gotta talk about victor. here we go yeah well we're, <clears throat> he needs uh, a, a, a whole episode uh, <laughs> 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 I, i've got some great anecdotes to contribute to that one but uh uh, anyhow, the, the double squash scene is something I want to talk about. Now, you mentioned hardball doubles, and uh, we're going to go, go there in a second. But uh, you, uh, you must have – you took a shine to, to double squash, I think, maybe before you, uh, you played hardball doubles. You're, you're a world uh, softball men's doubles champion and also mixed doubles champion, I think, alongside uh, Mark Kearns and Fiona Jeeves, respectively, uh, there. So uh, – I mean, did this, is this where your your sort of uh, eye for 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 doubles squash began? Was it back when? Because I know most the softball doubles is not. It's not like you guys go and say, "All right, let's let's play some doubles." It's yeah. it's almost as if, you know, all right, you got to play doubles in this uh, in the world teams. Go out and practice for a week. Is that kind of how it was? Yeah, or? it's definitely seasonal, right? The doubles because court access is so difficult there's not that many courts around and you know back when i was playing those doubles events so you know there were a handful of courts to practice on and so so we you know we only played doubles softball doubles really in the run-up to major events um and and when we could get everyone together so we could practice the game and and and, and you know and compete and learn learn some tactics and some new ideas and things like that so now now it's got more serious and there there you know there are there are more more doubles courts especially you know the national center in england for example that have got the doubles courts there but it is it is definitely a seasonal thing because there's no other event there's not that many events to compete for but i you know i i i enjoyed the doubles i you know i enjoyed having someone else on court as well to kind of bounce ideas off and uh and you know, and feel and feel like I'm playing for them as well as myself. So um, you know, I I had a lot of fun playing with Mark and with Fiona, and um, you know, we had some great experiences with with uh, with the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, uh, yeah, in Manchester and uh, and and the Worlds as well. Um, so yeah, so coming over here and playing hardball doubles was kind of an extension of that. But you know, it was it's a it's a very different game yeah. because. The, the court is a lot bigger, the ball is a lot faster, and the uh, the kind of the movement patterns and the and the shots are uh, are different as well. So there was a lot to learn, and, and so you know when I came over here and started playing doubles, um, 
And there's a long uh, history of doubles. Uh, I mean, a lot of the guys you would have been playing, especially the Americans and Canadians, a lot of them yeah. just played double, hardball growing up. Right. Guys well, like I mean, Gary, you know, and uh, Gary Waite and, you know. Exactly. Guys. Gary, what, Gary, was, uh, Gary was over here at the university club at the time, uh, at the turn of the century. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah. really leading the charge for, for doubles, for hardball doubles. I mean, I think he, he was you know, key, you know, one of the key people to really get a lot of events on at different clubs around the country and, and build a, a tour, the mm. tour that we now, you know, call the SDA. And, um, and so, you know, it, it's, uh, you, you're Gary and, and then guys like Jamie Bentley. I just remember, you know, there's the whole bunch of players that grew up playing hardball yeah. that were the ones that I the Stoneberg, yeah, the ones that I, you know, started to compete against. Yeah. And Victor Berg, right? I mean, I didn't yeah. realize, you know, I'd always seen Victor scrapping around playing playing, uh, playing singles, softball. But That's um, where I he, knew him. I mean, I knew him man, from, I mean, uh, from Whistler, Unbelievable, you know? unbelievable doubles player. And I, you know, yeah. had the pleasure, pleasure of playing with him for a couple of years. And, and uh, well, Talk about and that, learn. if you don't mind, Chris. I mean, uh, uh, that, that's where ultimately I was going to take this conversation is uh, to i mean you i know you played with uh challoner one of your your good buddies uh from back in the uk and uh, clive leach uh but yeah. uh, victor uh, is a you know different animal uh on and <laughs> yeah, off the yeah. court, but his personality presents itself on the court but the, this is where doubles is so much fun as well you know just saying about being on court with my partner and and playing for them as much as me and and you know, each partner I've played with has got different personalities. You know, like I played with Clive for a little while. We actually got to um, number one in the world. Um, and he is very, uh, you know, very serious. He'll whinge at any, you know, any mistake I make. It's like, oh, my God, I can't hit the tin or, you know, I can't do that because Clive's going to give me shit. So, so uh, you know, it's interesting that his dynamic was to try and put a bit of pressure on on me at least to, yeah. You know, or he felt it was pressure on me to 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 perform, um, and and so that was fun. But Victor is, um, you know, Victor. I felt like I I I was on there to let him play, and uh, and just form a kind of a solid backdrop and try and help create moments for his his vision of what might happen next. And, uh, you know, he's got a kind of a double handed backhand, but he can yeah. still inject an incredible amount of pace into the ball, forehand or backhand, fantastic timing. And, and doubles is a lot about timing of the weight transfer, um, you know, with a fast swing as well. So, uh, so, you know, I, you know, I thought, I mean, I, I like using my speed or, you know, in the past I've liked using my speed to get out of trouble and, and get back in points and and uh, and counter punch, but you know Victor was he's a little bit younger than me, so he he was kind of taking over that role. And well, he's and, fast uh, too. Sorry, he's very fast. He is. He's incredibly fast. And one thing you need to do to do in doubles is is kind of anticipate the winning shot from the opponents much much earlier than in squash, in singles, softball. You you have to start moving for the the shot that will win the point. Because if you don't move, it does win the point. It, you know, the, the court's that much bigger that you have to cover those gaps that are the winning shot before they've been hit. So you have to have a great understanding of the game 
So, you know, Victor was so good at that. His anticipation was, was uh, you know, second to none. I, I, I haven't played with anyone that reads and anticipates in the same way Victor does. And, you know, sometimes he gets it wrong, but not often. And, uh, and it's a lot of fun to play with someone like that if, if you can handle it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like I've, I had to, you know, I had to, again, adjust my, my uh, expectations and, my, and the, way I, the way I performed on the court to complement Victor because Victor mm. had so many, you know, assets in, in, in the game that, that you don't, you don't want to cut them out by, you know, by interfering too much. It's like, let him play. And, okay, if he wants, you know, if there's a loose shot in the middle and it's kind of my, my side or it's coming to me and he's, he's flying through, <laughs> let him play it, you know, because yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know what he's doing. So if, if I don't know what he's doing, these opponents, you know, our opponents are really in trouble. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so I lo- yeah, had a lot of fun. He's such a great guy as well. He's got yeah. a lovely wife, Julie, and, and uh, they're back in... Um, they're back in Canada now. They were, they would um, actually that's, uh, the winter of Vancouver. Vancouver right? Yeah. Green, uh, evergreen or one, one of those, those Vancouver based clubs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I think I, I actually, you know, I learned, uh, um, he, Victor's very much about being in the moment and, uh, you know, feeling the vibration um, of things and, and, um, you know, maybe that's why we, we enjoyed why well, I certainly love playing with him. He can, you know, he can speak for himself, but we had a, a, a good run for for a year or two. And um, yeah, so yeah. good to uh, to talk about that. Thanks. Thanks for bringing yeah. him up. Th- thanks for speaking to that. I, I know uh, I know Victor from way, way back when he was quite young, like a teenager. And, uh, you know, he obviously had talent as a softball uh you know, singles player back then. I think he, he was being coached a little bit by a Canadian legend, Steve Lawton. I don't know if you know Steve Lawton at all, but uh, he, he's quite, uh, has quite a fall. Uh, Steve's quite a, a legendary character in, uh, in Can- Canada, Australian guy uh, who based right. out of Vancouver for several years and, a, and an, an incredible shot maker himself uh, as a player and a flamboyant like, uh, like Victor. But uh, Victor was also known uh, uh, for his, uh, his gambling uh, after. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I can speak to you about that. Well, no, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you because I'm sure you know, uh, know Rob Owen a little bit. Uh, who, yeah. Who's worse? I, I, I mean, who's the more prolific? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I gotta I say, Rob would be. I gotta say that you know, knowing that Rob has kind of made a few million and uh, you know had on had an online gambling business and and has won, I would say that. Rob's probably the more successful gambler, um, but Victor, you know, I mean, there's Victor. When when we were playing in the tournaments in the states, there was a period where he was playing online poker, and uh, you know, we, between you know, I lived in Greenwich. He'd come and stay with me when we had a tournament in Greenwich, and you know, um, I remember him just playing like five tables online. Um, in bet- in between matches, back at the house, yeah. we'd just sit down. He'd have the laptop and you know five tables going and telling me how to play poker. I mean, he taught me how to play poker, right? And, uh, and learning about. Guy, I know. mean, he's been doing it since he was <coughs> seventeen. I mean, that like I can remember back then, <laughs> right? Playing with he'd be playing with the old boys at the club. Yeah, the- I mean, and he's also you know he he he's got a lot of experience and 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 um, 
you know, I know that he knows some of the some of the pro, you know, the pro um, poker players as well, the ones that go to Vegas and you know and, and play the the world poker championships. So, right. so he, you know, he's certainly um, invested in in the space, as it were, and uh, you know, and I know he's done well in at some periods, and uh, you know, obviously we don't talk about um, the not so good periods, but but. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's such an interesting character. Great sense of humor as well. I mean, I remember yeah. him, you know, be on court and and played a match. I can't remember who it was against, but middle of the rally, the uh, one of one of the opponents has has played a drive, full blooded, and it and it's hit Victor in the back of the leg, just uh, you know, uh, just below the, and the, the hard ball. Cheek, uh, I mean, that's, right? and that's he's facing man. forward, and and yeah. like the crowd of the crowd are just everyone's silent and just waiting for Victor to kind of like burst into tears or pain or something. And, and, uh, and he stood still for a couple of seconds and, you know, and everyone's quiet. And then he just turns around, looks up at the crowd with a, a massive grin on his face. <laughs> and the, I mean, what, what do you do? Just, yeah, no, just no. always looking. You know, talk about opportunist. Always, yeah. always looking for a, a moment of. Uh, He's definitely of a showman, isn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, definitely exhibitionist for sure. Absolutely. Now, uh, now, Chris, like I said, you've been great with your time. I won't keep you too much longer, uh, but I did want to ask you about World Squash Day. Uh, I know you um, were big, uh, obviously. Uh, proponent of world squash day alan thatcher's uh, baby and he was just on the podcast and we talked at length about uh, several things but one of the things that we discussed was uh, the, the the growth of uh, pickleball it's huge right. and uh, you know what came out of that discussion was that uh, you know the fact that uh, pickleball is you know it's it's accessible it's outdoors it's easy to play uh, demographics uh, all demographics can just sort of pick the game up and play it. And, and uh, that seems to be where this, you know, it, it's absolutely huge now for some reason. Uh, and I think that's probably the main reason. And what can squash uh, kind of learn from that? And we, I, I, I guess uh, one of the things we took away was we have to make it uh, playable for, uh, for people beyond, you know, the advanced or intermediate level players because sometimes uh you know beginners get discouraged and then old boys can't play anymore all uh, you know the older older players can't play anymore uh so what's your sort of take on 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 that perspective of it so yeah world squash day uh, definitely uh, alan thatcher's done a, a fantastic job in building that branding and and promoting and getting lots of things going on around the world um, you know, in in the name of our sport that we all dearly love, I you know I, I have to say I don't do enough to help with that, um, but I'll do what I can. And yeah. uh, you know, this particular last week was obviously probably the hardest World Squash Day ever because with COVID and all of the publicity about being in spaces together, it, it's uh, you know it, the timing timing of it makes it makes it very difficult to do anything. And, and the last six months has certainly stopped everyone from playing for a, a good period of time. Mm. So, you know, people are missing playing. But 
the bigger question is how do we get more people playing and how do we you know we we get the awareness out there for whatever reason we need to get more people playing and, and get the kids playing and keep them playing and have them uh you know offer them a path to be able to hit some balls and go oh, i like this maybe i'll try it a bit more maybe i'll go down to a, a club and see you know see what it feels like to play on a on a in a league or something and and and, and see what else, what other opportunities there are so we have to kind of create a a path for all of that um an interesting i don't know if you saw but a few months ago um just here in queens in in new york there's a a, a couple of guys at a welding company mm. squash lovers um <laughs> that couldn't get on their club courts in the city and they were halfway through building an outdoor squash court made of steel yeah and and uh and so they complete they they completed that in double quick time at the start of COVID, and then uh, and they actually you know reached out. I got in, I was connected by Gary Waite actually um, about the uh, about the court, and ended up going to try and play on it. And it's a it's an awesome experience playing outside on a court which actually plays very similarly to a, an all glass court. It's, it's fast around the middle and, and it dies in the corners. If you hit a decent length, um, you get really rewarded for it. If it clips the sidewall early, it, you know, it, it sits awesome. up and yeah. a lot of fun to play on. Um, but you've also got the extra, you know, I was wearing a baseball cap playing it because sometimes the sun was in the way at different oh, angles, yeah, yeah. you know, depending on the shot and the angle being left or right-handed, the sun was in play. And it did remind me of playing tennis. It did, you know, that, that feel of being outdoors and, and kind of the sun and, and dealing with, with, with the climatic conditions. Um, so, you know, having said that, that, that could be a way to get more, more people playing squash, not just kids. But if we had, you know, just some walls in parks that maybe had side walls as well, so people could kind of go in there and hit drives and boasts and, and you know, hit the ball back to each other and get the yeah. concept of what squash is. It's, you know, it's only one step further than than walls that I've seen at, at parks in the city here, which which tennis players use to hit tennis balls. You know, there's a there's a white line as high as the tennis net. So. Well, they do have a lot of these tennis courts, too, are, are surrounded by a fence. So, I mean, you just put a. Instead of a fence, you, you have a, a wall. Right, yeah. There's there's a lot of different things. You know, Alan Thatcher was talking about this as well. And and you know, I don't know what I don't know what the answer is. It's a, it's a slow and steady kind of progression. You know, if you're talking about globally, um, to to try and encourage courts to be built indoors and outdoors, and just offer offer the different options if you want an outdoor court because you've got you know a lot of sunny weather it doesn't rain that much then um you know this is a solution stick this up and it's not that expensive put two or three up and and just get people on there to play in a park environment where they just turn up with a a ball and a racket like you turn up with a football to kick around the park you know it's we kind of need that sort of that sort of thing and you know alan's got another great concept which he wants to build uh 200 courts in the next 10 years to um, to represent the 200 years of age since squash was conceived or um, yeah. started yeah, in, in that. that. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
Yeah, starting in the so so I think that's his next mission is actually to to try and get 200 courts built around the world as part of this uh, campaign for celebrating 200 years of squash in 2030. That's a that's a great uh, idea. I mean, you you get 200 courts around the world, and that's going to hopefully spread to even more, isn't it? That that's basically the idea. So. Yeah, and, and the other part of that is that it's more accessible. You know, we have, we have hundreds of courts being built here in the states, but they're private courts and they're yeah. school courts or college courts, and and very inaccessible. And you know, even the even the um, commercial clubs are you know relatively expensive, and and we need we need more public access with you know low or no cost to just get get on a get on in a space and hit some balls against the wall with a buddy you know that yeah. sort of thing which is a lot of fun and addictive and it can happen um and i mean uh, i mean you think think about it i mean people when when you go to the beach you you go when i used to go to the beach we'd always uh we'd play play with the the paddle racket ball people love you know tennis rackets balls uh, just hitting the ball up and down the wall uh, if that was accessible outdoors i think it would really you know you'd think it could catch on you know yeah and that you know that's i mean pickleball's had a and you're talking about pickleball it's it's had a result with covid because you know everyone's going well what can i do outside and you know not everyone is uh, you know talented enough to kind of walk out and play tennis but yeah. pickleball you, you know it's very easy to the ball's slower. It kind of like floats in the air a bit more, and yeah. you know, it, it's fun. You know, absolutely. Stay out yeah. the kitchen. That's what everyone and, says. Yeah. yeah, you know, it, it's fun. It's taken off incredibly well here. I mean, there's a couple of unbelievable facilities that have actually kind of been built since COVID began because they've seen the opportunity. And that's a you know, I, I guess when I think about um, you know America being across the pond now that's another thing that kind of attracted me to the country is everyone's willingness to try something new and, and move, move forward with new ideas quickly. And, and, yeah. and you know, and, and, that, and that's not really a British mentality. <laughs> so, you know, so that a great example is pickleball and, you know, yeah. a lot of companies that have reacted to COVID over here and found a way to be, you know, successful in a new environment, they've adapted very quickly. So I guess we want to try to change that stereotype of what what a lot of people think squash is, don't we? Uh, yes, yeah. How do we present it? How do we get it out there and present it like pickleball did, right? How, how do we how do we do that? I've not seen Federer play pickleball, but people no. have people like have started squash. playing pickleball. It'll be a good model to follow. Yeah. But yeah. one uh, one other thing, just before we go, uh, was uh, I think Nick Taylor. I was speaking to Nick Taylor about this when he was on, and then I talked to Alan about. It. But Nick was saying before uh, he won the forty-five and over World Masters, I guess it would have been the last World Masters he played in it. Uh, he said he didn't play squash for for two weeks leading up to that tournament. He played squash fifty-seven, <laughs> right? And he said. Well, that- uh, he said I mean, Nick, it Nick was incredible uh, uh, preparation. Nick, Nick could have been on the beach for those two weeks of tanning himself with, you know, <laughs> lotion. <laughs> I mean, he's got a, a whole life of, of 
top level squash experience and fitness and yeah and uh you know he's got the right body type for it too like he he doesn't see he's just a low center of gravity looks very quick very obviously the racket's not going to leave him right so yeah but, but you know we talk about tapering down and knowing your own body and you know i was there actually at uva um and watch nick play play the, his matches there and watch the final and you know he, he's in great shape you're not going to lose your fitness or anything in two weeks he knows that um you know a bit of rest before uh, the onslaught to your body for a competition as you get older you don't you know you don't need as much no. free so you know so you know moving around a bit slower with the squash 57 thing and i'm sure that probably kept his eye in kept his body nicely oiled and and uh you know he turned up at uva nice and fresh as he wanted to and ready to go yeah he's uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah, precisely yeah he he was the worst that you know what the worst thing for him to do for the two weeks before the world masters was to play hard squash for two weeks. <laughs> that would no, have been the worst thing. That would have been the worst. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, what do you have, uh, what do you have going on now? Uh, uh, after this, you, you, um, any, anything squash related or is it still uh, tough going right now? So I'm actually, I'm incredibly busy because um, I'm the director of squash at the river club in New York, which is a, a beautiful private club that has three squash courts, um, two tennis courts, two golf simulators and a swimming pool and a whole bunch of hospitality stuff. They opened the tennis uh, at the beginning of June. Um, we opened the squash courts, uh, very just just opened them and make, made them available for like staggered bookings and things like that at the beginning of August. Um, and then, and now the kids have come back to school in New York and and a lot of the families with kids are back in New York. Um, some of the kids have got to go into school for one or two days a week or, yeah. you know, temporary or, That's what or whatever. Like, so, yeah, we, yeah. yeah so the, there's, I've got a lot of kids back. I've, I've got three courts. I've got about 70 kids. Um, so I'm dealing with 140 parents. Uh, scheduling, okay. scheduling them, I've got um, – Five That's got to be time. exciting for you, though, because, I mean, it, not having had that and not knowing. Oh, it's been, no, I'm saying if it's going to be there, now it's, yeah. now it's back. I'm busy. Oh, the, the, you know, some of the adults are coming back to play. The kids are back. If, you know, if we have clinics for the kids, they've got to wear a mask and everyone sanitizes before and coming off the court. Um, coaches are wearing a face mask and an eye mask um all the time. And we've got a, a rubber glove on a non-squash plane hand for if if the if the uh, students are uncut, you know, want us to wear that just for extra kind of protection. And so um, we're, we're maximizing or sorry, no, we're not ma- the maximum number of kids we have on court is, is three. Okay. And, um, and, and there's kind of a, a rotational system of coming in and out of the club. So there's no, uh, there's no congregating around the courts and, and people are, you know, keeping their distance. So, um, so I've been busy organizing all of that and, and I, you know, I'm doing some coaching myself and, um, you know, I, we're, we're relatively quiet at the weekends, but, but, uh, it's exciting that we've got a pulse at the club. Tennis is also quite busy. Um, the swimming pool opens, uh, next week. 
Um, golf is is open, but there's a little, you know, I mean, people are outside at the moment, so they play golf outside. So it's quite quiet. Um, but the simulator, I'm sure, will get busier. Uh, but, you know, there's there's a lot of CDC um, things, that rules and regulations to abide by. And we're abiding by those and, you yeah. know, and, and uh, making it all happen. And and so I'm just you know, grateful that, that I'm busy again. And uh, after six months of of uh, not really having much earning opportunity, it is a relief. And, you know, I just feel for there's still clubs in the city that are, that are not open or still much less um open with a lot more restrictions than than our club um but you know slowly things are uh opening up again and we're we're you know everyone's eager to get more competition and you know the kids want to play and they want to do their tournaments and and so you know we're all praying for the vaccine and uh and and getting back to you know back to what we do that's uh, that's awesome. Hopefully soon, uh, with any luck, maybe the sometime in the new year, maybe February. Trump says it's uh, it's happening soon, very soon before the end of the year, according to Trump. But <laughs> <laughs> what was that? What's happening? Oh, the, the vaccine. That's what, oh, the vac- uh, every yeah. every time he speaks, he said the vaccine's almost ready. <laughs> but Chris, uh, uh, I really, uh, really enjoyed uh, the, these two chats that we've had. Uh, you've been a, a player that I've uh, always enjoyed watching play growing, uh, growing up. And uh, this is really fantastic to have spent some time with you. And I just want to uh, wish you and your family, your young family, uh, all the best. And with your squash uh, coaching, all the best with that. And uh, take care of that hip. And uh Hopefully, we'll see you back on the doubles court uh, soon. Jerry, thanks very much for having us. It's been a pleasure to delve into the archives of my mind. <laughs> and uh, I wish you all the best as well. Your, your podcast is great. And, and uh, just to be part of that is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, you know, humbled that you've, you've asked me and, and to have a part two and and so, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I look forward to part three in like 2030 or something like that when we, yeah. we've got okay. some more doubles to talk about. <laughs> Definitely. When, when, you win the, uh, when you win the next pro doubles event, uh, we'll have you on. Uh, post-championship <laughs> okay. post interview. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun, Jerry. Thank you. Well, absolutely great guy, Chris Walker. Thanks so much for that. Uh, two parts, uh, episodes 162 and this one, episode 168. Just pure gold and uh, really appreciate Chris for his time and uh, what an incredible career he's had and is still having and all the best. Uh, We want to wish him all the best with the recovery uh, of his second uh, hip surgery. And like he said, you know, uh, it's all it's uh, onwards and upwards now. It's not it's something, you know, he's looking at uh, improving. He instead of. regressing he's looking at improving so all the best uh to chris in that endeavor and uh, again thanks so much to him for sharing uh his experiences over the years uh, both as a player as a coach uh and uh, just as a squash enthusiast uh, really appreciate his time now also really appreciate all of you for what you do and uh, thank you so much for listening and sharing uh, this with um, with your squash community please continue to do so uh, give us a like uh, please give uh, in squash podcast a like on twitter on instagram and on facebook and share our episodes with your uh, squash community and at your club and amongst uh, 
the players that you play with. Just want to say congratulations to uh, Nor El Sherbini and uh, Norhan Gohar for for their fantastic play at the Egyptian Open, the CIB Egyptian Open. Great, great uh, results for both of them. Uh, Norhan was uh, had a little bit of an injury heading into I think to the semifinal, maybe even in the quarterfinal, but she battled through it and and fought really well. But uh, Nor. Uh, Noriel Sherbini uh, just uh, too strong on the day, and she's proven uh, that you know she's back. Uh, she's going to be back at number one again, and she's going to uh, be difficult to beat. But the women's game is looking very, very good, as is the men's. Uh, Ali Farag, congratulations to him taking over uh, the men's number one spot, winning there in Egypt, and an emotional uh, uh, ending for him as well. We all saw that, and uh, he. He just played extremely well uh, throughout that tournament, battled through uh, a couple of tough matches and then played brilliantly there against Tarek Momin uh, in the final. And also, Tarek, uh, congratulations to him for battling through a very, very, very deep draw and some tough matches uh, there. And he had a very difficult one in the semifinal with Marwan uh, El Sherbag, who's also proven uh, that he's... Uh, playing uh, probably the best squash of his career right now. He got a little bit unlucky uh, there in the semifinal. Uh, maybe just got maybe let the, the officiating or you know some personal issues uh, get the better of him in that match. But uh, you know he has nothing to be ashamed of. He played extremely well and uh, it looks re uh, both men's and women's games uh, going forward we have a lot to look forward to. So great event there at the CIB Egyptian Open. And congratulations to both the winners, uh, Noor El Sherbini and Ali Farag. And uh, everybody, thank you again for listening. All the best with your squash this week. Uh, stay tuned. We've got some uh, episodes uh, upcoming, so stay tuned for those. Really appreciate your time, and uh, have a great day. Goodbye now.